Uh, the decision enables uh, it, it, to enable the Trump administration's. Uh, I, I don't know what they're even saying about it. I hear he's tweeting one thing, and then the other people are saying another. But whatever it is, it's not good news for the president of the United States. As the chair of the Financial Services Committee, we learned an awful lot about this president, his relationship to Deutsche Bank. Deutsche Bank had a reputation for money laundering. I heard what the president said on schools, but uh, this has uh, been there, done that, right? Uh, school reopenings are a state decision, period. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast. I'm Virginia Heffernan. Welcome to Mary. Trump cast. That is just kidding. Mary Trump is not the topic for today because the president's niece has, of course, been muzzled by her uncle, Donald Trump, for daring to speak out against the Trump family and warn as a PhD in clinical psychology about the extreme danger posed by this president, Uncle President. Now, of course, that danger should be plain as day by now as the country circles the drain, but it also needs illuminating by someone in the family. That's Ivanka's freaking cousin, who knows where the bodies are buried, is willing to break ranks and get the usual death threats that befall people like Colonel Vindman and Christine Blasey Ford, who dare speak up against this regime. I understand Mary Trump has the goods on Trump's cheating heart and adds the good old SATs with their polynomials and the word permeate to the numberless things the president has cheated on. And on that hefty list, the SATs join golf, polls, wives, taxes, and of course, American presidential elections. Anyway, Mary Trump wanted to be a guest on Trumpcast, or so I tell myself, and intermediaries confirm she really did want to be on the show, but she is bound and gagged by Bill Barr's Justice Department, and for now, I'll content myself with her book, which just landed on my desk while I was making this episode. Anyway, I'm about to grab my mask and head to the park to devour her book, but first... One of Trumpcast's absolute favorites, the journalist and longtime reporter on the Balkans and Ukraine, that's Molly McHugh, is here to talk about those Kremlin bounties on the heads of American and allied soldiers in Afghanistan. These are the ones Trump, as is his wont when it comes to the Kremlin, though not to black NASCAR drivers, turned a blind eye to. This story cannot be lost in the latest flurry of trending topics. Molly has been tenacious with the Kremlin Trump story from before day one, and she is not going to let the bounty story get lost. So let's get started. Molly, my friend, welcome back to Trumpcast. Thanks for having me. So we send each other drafts of our stories, and you sent me a draft of a story about Afghanistan. Just to remind everyone, since we already had the attention span of gnats. And now we have reason to have that because we're overcome by events. That the major story of last week was that Trump had known about bounties taking out on the heads of American soldiers and done nothing about it and essentially rolled out the red carpet to it as he does with most Russian ops. So you wrote an excellent piece giving a framework to these 
revelations about Trump. And it has yet to be published, but it's so good, it will make it to coming to a magazine near you. But maybe you can talk us through the piece to start off. Sure. Uh, it's always hard to talk about things that, that aren't out in public yet, because what's the point? But, you know, I think the attention on the this bounty story, this idea that Russia was paying members of the Taliban or Taliban-connected militants, and by Russia, we mean Russian military intelligence, most likely the same unit that has been conducting attacks on America and assassinations elsewhere. But the idea that they were paying sort of cash bounties, and it's a pretty large, for like in the stories that have come out, the amount found sort of sitting around in huts somewhere has been like $500,000 of cash. Oof which is right. an awful lot of cash. Uh, and yeah. I get the sense from talking to some of my sources that, that that's like way on the low end of what we're talking about here. Half a million dollars will get you a lot of really fancy dress honor killings, as I understand it. Or a lot of really shitty Russian guns and ammo, which is also <laughs> what they need. Right. So the story that came out is this Russian military intelligence unit offering Taliban-connected militants cash bounties to kill American and probably British service members who are in Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. um, the perception very much being that the Americans and the Brits are kind of the anchor team of the NATO coalition that's there sort of continuing the fight against insurgency in Afghanistan to keep the elected government in charge, et cetera, et cetera. Now, mm -hmm. all of this has gotten somewhat muddled by the fact that the Trump administration has been pursuing this crazy quote, peace deal with the Taliban since basically coming to office, this idea that the Taliban needs to be a negotiating partner at the table instead of the elected government of Afghanistan, mm -hmm. who was not a part mm -hmm. of this negotiation. So this story comes out that Russia's paying for bounties on American scalps, essentially, using mm -hmm. terrorist groups to do it. And the reaction of this administration is... No, they didn't. There's no proof that that happened. Who leaked that story? The leakers of the enemy, not the Russians. They have not in any way addressed the core elements of the story, denying the intelligence, saying it's not agreed upon. And from conversations, uh, again, with people that I know who are sort of connected to this stuff, the mm -hmm. disagreements on the intelligence are not that there are disagreements, but only that the intelligence on this came from specific sources that are pretty specific sources. So some of the agencies don't have overlapping or confirming intelligence, not because they have contradicting information, just because they are not on the ground talking to Taliban sources, which is where this information came from. It's crazy that the first response to good American intelligence that makes it w its way into the daily briefing is to say, and eh, not agreed on. And I think really worth emphasizing, collected by American special operators on the ground. Like this is where this intelligence was coming from, not from like, some guy sitting in a room somewhere listening to telephone calls, but the core of this intelligence was from our guys fighting in Afghanistan on the ground, seeing what's going on, finding this cash, figuring out where it came from, and then um, interrogating people connected to it. It isn't even our allied intelligence. It's not Christopher Steele this time. It's not an Australian. It's our intelligence, and it's pr further proof that no matter where the news of Russian military operations comes from, it will be doubted by this administration. Right. And so that's kind of where I tried to take this piece. The idea that it's not about this story about the bounties, which is terrible and in no way something that is defendable. It is absolutely a tool that I'm sure that Russian military intelligence units use. 
But if you look at the longer line of behavior of Russia in Afghanistan and Syria, in particular against our special forces, who are sort of the tip of the spear of our real efforts to get after these types of sort of disruptive hybrid tactics targeting the United States. Um, but if you look at the longer line of what Russia has been doing in, in Afghanistan and Syria, there is no question about what they do. They have supported the Taliban with arms, with training, with money, with intelligence for years. We know that. Our military commanders say that in congressional testimony, in interviews, in public. There is no mystery about this. In Syria, they have repeatedly, like Russian forces and mercenaries, have directly targeted U.S. forces to try to push them back from where they are. Uh, we don't really talk about it, but they do. You know, there's no mystery about this. So Trump's sort of bizarro efforts to claim he's making peace with the Taliban are not just making peace with a repressive terrorist organization, but another way to soothe or to throw a proxy war that we have with Russia and um, and cool off our response to Russian proxies in the region. Is that right? I think it's it's everywhere is the problem. It's not just in the region. This idea yeah. that that the best forces uh, and the best resources that we have against the type of tactics we see Russia using are being constantly pulled back by this administration from the front lines. And it's so absurd, even on its face, when you look at what they're doing on Russia. And then there's this whole effort to sort of divert to China and talk about the, the threat of Chinese hybrid aggression and all the Chinese influence uh, operations and, and economic warfare and other things that are happening, all of which are true. But you cannot yeah. separate the Russian uh, and Chinese tactics. They are from the same playbook. Um, they operate in these sort of gray, soft spaces where we are slow to identify them and crap at responding. They can sit there and talk all they want about China and Chinese influence operations and not talking about Russia at the same time is just insane. It's just, I mean, so on its face, there is no policy in this administration that has to do with Russia that makes any sense at all. And their continued silence on any issue that arises connecting to it is just stunning. So 2017, I think before you and I hooked up in earnest, you spent some time in your old stomping ground in the Baltics and Ukraine in your old uh, like watering holes. Is that like too dated an <laughs> expression? But anyway, bars, <laughs> drinking and smoking with some of your friends. And they were soon after the inauguration, extremely afraid, it sounds like, of what might happen to NATO, of, uh, of Trump's uh, alliance with the, uh, the Kremlin. And what was that like? Your sources there and your sources in, in the special forces? So I think, you know, at the beginning of the administration, it was this very weird time and environment where everything Trump said was terrifying to our European allies, who are not slanting towards populism themselves, as some are. Mm -hmm. But it was just, you know, his attacks on NATO, his attacks on allies, his pandering to Putin, his weird statements about U.S. foreign policy and, and power projection writ large, his weird statements about the military. You know, all of this was just sort of very unnerving. But then the layer underneath that at the time was you had Secretary Mattis uh, as mm -hmm. Secretary of Defense, you had Dunford, who was still chairman of the Joint Chiefs. You had, at the time, Scaparati, who was still the U.S. commander of our forces in Europe. And all of these were generals that 
these guys knew they knew they were serious people and underneath the Trump administration's arm waving about, you know, being nuts about whatever was really serious work to throw U.S. resources into the region to um, reinforce our military and sort of security and defense interests there, um, which were efforts that had been ongoing, but basically throwing as much of the stuff forward as possible before anybody in the administration could stop it or disrupt it or pull it back. So that was very reassuring to people. But I mean, you couldn't separate the two things of like, okay, there's some guys we know that we trust, but then there's all this crazy shit and we don't really know what to do about this crazy stuff. And you might remember the, there's been a couple of uh, joint meetings. Um, The three Baltic presidents tend to sort of work as a coalition since they're small countries and they have common interests. There's been multiple meetings between the three Baltic presidents and President Trump, each one of which has included a broadcast portion, which is painful as Trump tries to bait them into saying bad things about NATO and they sort of don't do it because they're not stupid. And And doesn't he sometimes (laughs) call the Baltics the Balkans? Yeah, he's not really sure. And he thinks they started World War I and II and they're just sitting there like, okay, sounds (laughs) neat. But um, I mean, it was pretty amazing in in the most recent one before there's a new Lithuanian president now, but the previous one who was sort of this powerhouse woman, you know, sort of on camera in front of whoever had been invited into one of the weird meetings, very much refused to take his bait on trashing NATO and saying NATO Mm -hmm. was a bunch of freeloaders and very specifically contradicted him on a number of points. And that for a small country that really needs the United States uh, and its support uh, on defense and other issues was really notable. So I just think... You know, we forget because here inside this tornado of insanity, you forget the 95 stories that are terrifying that we've had to move on from. Mm -hmm. But for example, the number of things during, as you might remember, when President Trump was supporting Roy Moore for Senate, and when it came out that he was a child molester and a disgusting, nasty human being, um, and Trump was defending him and saying great things about him. But the impact that that has on our allies who really believe in us and who were really at the time looking for something good to say about this guy. Like mm-hmm. President Trump can't be as bad as we think. Like there must be something else here. Yeah. He's just committed to infrastructure. Exactly. The number of people <laughs> who see things like that and say, wait, infrastructure week is about supporting molesters. Like we don't understand. Mm-hmm. And and the effect that that has on them and sort of the late night sob sessions into whiskey about you don't understand if you guys aren't there, no one is there. And then what do we do? And I think that's the piece that most Americans who are very far from all of this miss, but you have seen it so tactically in the last four years that, yeah, the free world is a really nice idea, but really if we're not the thing behind it, sort of making it go, it falls apart because everybody starts looking for guarantees, allies, economic alliances, support, whatever, to sort of support their own positions against Russia, China, whatever they think is the bigger threat. And it just all starts falling to bits and we need to be there. And the smarter countries, I think, really see that. Yeah. But the frontline discussions you have with people who spend their lives looking at this, and in many cases who have spent their lives fighting for this, where they understand what we're losing and we don't is really gutting. You know, because the shift from talking about the bounties to talking once again about domestic politics, racism since July 4th um, and Trump's uh, Trump's 
usual incendiary. I don't even want to say polarizing incendiary. There must be something stronger, you know, off the deep end of far right rhetoric. His his uh, his talk. It's Lately, a good reminder. Race baiting. But race baiting, yeah, good, better. It's a good reminder that about how these things play abroad. I mean, not just. Um, racism has been a national security issue for a long time, exploited by Russians to show we're not all that great and we have our a genocide on our hands also. But just as Walt Schaub says, when we dropped our ethics program, essentially, when Trump refused to divest, he was suddenly in the camp of corrupt leaders. Um, and that means we're very, very far from a shining city on a hill where we're now... Um, you know, just as bad as the rest of them. And, and you know, why would NATO get any confidence from, uh, from a country without the way that we've held ourselves up to be an ethical, principled nation that's not studded with uh, Berlusconi's, you know? And so that, I think that is a, the kind of temperature taking that has to happen abroad where you do it. And also among the special forces. So I want you to tell the story of Mihail Golan and also talk about your sources in the army because they too are intermittently stationed in Ukraine and the Baltics and they too are registering sometimes with their very lives the consequences of this corrupt and sold president. Well, with the emphasis that most of our guys almost never talk about politics or want to connect it to anything, which I think is important, but do see the Russian threat Um, and do understand that even when they're willing to give the president the benefit of the doubt, still this idea that there are many people that I think buy into this concept of the deep state and this idea that Hmm. the problem is not actually Trump. It's, it's that he doesn't know stuff, but the people around him are the wrong people and they're not telling him the right things. And if only he knew he would wake up and it's like, yeah, I don't think he's going to wake up. But, mm-hmm. um, but there are many people who legitimately believe that. But I think on the know. special forces side, um, there's a lot going on with the U S everywhere. And I think um, when it comes to U S special forces in particular, it is a unique special operating force um, that was sort of invented after the Cold War, the idea being it's a, it's the group that works with essentially partisan fighters other places in the world, but with local forces to train um, and support uh, local groups that will be accomplishing at the time sort of anti-communist missions. But now yeah. the idea is sort of counterinsurgency, counterterrorism, resistance building, sort of local resilience. Uh, depending on where you are, the, the missions are very different. But their job is to train and work with local partner forces that are our allies. And that gives them this very frontline view of what's happening because they're supposed to be sort of deep into these missions with deep local knowledge and language skills, um, which is why many members of our special forces groups are foreign born. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of naturalized Americans in these groups for their language skills, for their cultural experience. And I think that that's very unique in terms of the skill set it brings to the table. And that includes this Latvian-born Golan. Yeah. So at the beginning of 2018, on New Year's Day in 2018, there was a member of the 10th Special Forces Group, um, Mihap Golan, who was uh, killed in Afghanistan on New Year's Day. And it just sort of became very emblematic for us of the things that we need. How great would it have been to have this Latvian guy? He grew up in Latvia and sort of 
just post-independence Latvia or close to then independence and then independent Latvia and came to the U.S. when he was uh, 18 or 19, immediately joined the army and served three tours overseas before joining special forces and going back to Afghanistan. And like, how great would it have been to have that guy with local knowledge and skills in the Baltics where I think everybody wanted him to go instead of Afghanistan fighting tactical missions. The problem being, it became very clear that no matter where you look, the, an enemy seems to be the Kremlin. And the fact that whether it be the Baltics or Afghanistan, it's sort of different ends of the same front in the same war, different means of aggression, different tactics, different means of confronting us. But I think our unwillingness to see this systemic threat to us, to what we believe in, to our country, whether it be at home or abroad, in this administration, the unwillingness to sit down and connect those dots is crippling us in terms of our understanding of our security and what we need to do. But it's just really stunning. You know, this point you make, it just I just want to slow down on the idea that it's, in some cases, it, um, immigrants now, American citizens, but immigrants from places like Latvia that end up um, joining our special forces. Uh, I mean, that brings to mind um, Colonel Vindman, who we saw during the impeachment and other, it almost makes you think, <laughs> like some of the battles, some of the biggest battles of our catastrophic moment have been among Russian immigrants, you know, who the Felix Saders of the world, the Lev Parnasses of the world, who came to Brooklyn or Long Island, and the kind of Vindmans and Golans who came from regions that were fighting Russia, that felt oppressed by Russia. And for them to play out these battles, and then for the Vindmans and the Golans to find that Trump has the back of his Russian-born cronies and even uh, Vladimir Putin, just the alarm that must have, you know, come over Golan before he was killed and that we saw on Vindman's face when he felt betrayed by the U.S. government is, you know, a kind of subplot of our time. It's where this battle ended up. Yeah, you know, it's interesting there's been a lot of, of research I've done on Baltic-born or descended individuals who, um, especially the group that that sort of fled after the Soviet occupation and World War II, uh, ended up in the U.S. or Canada, sort of ended up in various uh, special forces groups or in the army writ large. But mm-hmm. the impact that that had through the 60s and through the height of the Cold War, that we were recruiting these guys that we wanted them in the fight, that we understood how important it was for them to be there and tried to find a way to use their drive and capability in our own operations. I think it's, it's one of the reasons Kennedy was a really big fan of special forces. Mm. <laughs> but, um, mm. but I just think writ large, there's a relationship in particular between us and the Baltic states and also, I mean, other post-Soviet states as well, but in particular the Baltic states. The best story that I have on this is, of course, um, uh, Alexander Einselm, who was an Estonian who um, left uh, Estonia when he was a little kid, you know, spent some time in some German relocation camp before Hmm. coming to the U.S. with his mother, um, but joined the army basically as soon as he could, as many of the displaced Balts did, because they wanted... 
they would fight for anyone who would let them keep fighting the Russians, essentially. Like, who's going to put me in this fight? Okay, I'm in the army. Let's go. Yeah. And he served 35 years in the U.S. Army and retired. I mean, he was in Vietnam. There's just great stories around this guy's life and, and sort of yeah. the other cadre of vaults that, that fought at this time and were sort of core to how we were thinking about revamping unconventional warfare and, and how we worked with local partner forces and what it would look like if we were working sort of behind enemy lines to try to advance change and, and just the way these guys impacted our thinking. But then after he retired and then Estonia became independent again, he was recruited to come back and rebuild their army. And there mm -hmm. are um, other Estonians and Latvians and Lithuanians of similar background that went back and uh, John McCain sort of championed them to be sure they mm. could get waivers so that they could keep their U.S. military pensions and still work overseas, which is normally not allowed to work directly for a foreign military if you're a U.S. Yeah. veteran. But um, yeah. Um, but McCain sort of understood this was a very unique cadre of individuals that sort of created this unique bond between our countries. But across the armed forces in those three countries, you still see these guys who are West Point educated, U.S. trained, playing central roles in rebuilding and restructuring their own defense capabilities. And I think that bond is so unique between our countries um, and really creates the sort of common military culture, which is usually very hard to create that kind of interoperability. But it's just been so important to the story of who we are and how we work with these countries. Um, and I just think it's something that's pretty invisible to most Americans and deserves a mm -hmm. lot more attention. But I also thought about that a lot when Vindman was testifying. Yeah. Just that there is this longer history of, you know, people either first generation or directly from Soviet countries at the time who have joined the U.S. military because they really believe in this fight. And not just counter Russia, but this idea of the United States is fighting for freedom and the right values around the world. And we need to be there. We need to be in that fight. It matters to us that we're there. Yeah. And it's really important. It's just important. It's good history and none of us know it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I mean, I certainly don't. And that, that's what makes this piece especially important. Publishers, if you're listening, this piece is increasingly <laughs> urgent. I don't know if you ever heard, um, we had Theo Padnos on the show who was held hostage by Al-Qaeda for a couple of years in, um, in Syria. And right after Gina Haspel was appointed to run the CIA, he came on to talk about leadership and command structures in the U.S. and how they influence the actions of terrorist groups abroad, including how they treat hostages, how they treat our armies, how they treat civilians abroad. Absolutely. And it completely jibed with what you're saying. In Theo's case, it was uh, who was actually a friend of my friend of mine then and now. Before though, he was uh, he always says taken prisoner, but kidnapped and tortured. That Trump's reputation for sexual abuse and harassment, including his you know fondness with creepy erotic fondness for his daughter, is not lost on terrorist forces abroad who use it, can use it as a pretext. And this sounded um, far-fetched to me, but but Theo really made the case that use it as a pretext for still more sexual torture um, of, um, of victims there. Um, and that seems to be related to the tone set by the chain of command that has influenced how sometimes quite directly, as with Golan, how Americans are treated abroad. And, you know, he says that he speaks often, he's, he was on the far left, but now he's a hero to West Point because 
you know, he survived torture at the hands of a, a, a terrorist organization. And he's just said that the the looks on the faces of the West Point graduates, Annapolis graduates, when he he just describes how kind of left out to dry Americans have been abroad, is just crushing because they've never thought they would graduate into a world like this. And I think that is the thing that I think is being overshadowed by this bounty story. And again, the bounty thing is terrible and absolutely there should be consequences for it. But well before there was a numerical value of dollars being placed on the heads of American servicemen overseas, the behavior of this administration and its continued uh, willingness to ignore Russia, to back down from Russia, to step back when they tell us to step back has placed a target on the back of all our guys. And many of our guys don't even really see that. And I fight with them about it a lot. But the, the willingness of this administration to get kicked in the junk repeatedly and let that be something that delivers for the Kremlin, it works. They're going to keep doing it. And this idea that like, if you give the Kremlin a little bit of what it wants, they're going to be happy and like back off is exactly the opposite of what everybody knows is true. If you show the Kremlin you're willing to give them a little bit of what they want, they're going to show up the next day with 200 Wagner guys and start shooting at a U.S. Special Forces base to see what happens because they think they might get something out of it. And the fact that we don't, the fact that we don't sit there and put all these pieces together, sort of cross theater, we know what they're doing in Afghanistan with the Taliban. We know what they did with and are still doing with ISIS in Syria, Iraq, and Libya. We know how they're using mercenaries um, in Syria and Libya in sub-Saharan Africa now writ large. Um, But these new tactics of hybrid confrontation of proxy warfare Um, It just creates a whole realm of questions. It basically means any out-of-pattern attack on U.S. diplomats or forces anywhere in the world should be assessed through this lens of hybrid conflict. Yeah. You know, is there a proxy force there that is Russian-backed, that is Chinese-backed, that is Iranian-backed, that we need to be analyzing in a different context um, than just, oh, it was like some random attack by, uh, you know, a truckload of militants in somewhere in Central Africa, was it? Or do we know that for sure? Because it's really to the point where we need to look at the broader landscape now of this new geopolitical conflict, which is being fought through proxies and other means that we are not comfortable talking about and not comfortable calling out publicly um, for a whole range of reasons. But more specifically, we're not using the elements of national power that we have to confront it, of the, the various means we have of advancing our interests in the world Um, Right now, the only one that gets any attention or has any real strategic planning is the military. And I love those guys. And I think they're doing a hell of a job in a lot of places, but they cannot be out there on their own, which is what our military commanders are consistently saying. Like, we're happy to be in Afghanistan doing this stuff, but boy, it would be nice if there were plans on, you know, aid development, um, broader diplomatic initiatives, where is everybody else? And that question of where's the American, where are the Americans has been what's echoing through our heads the last four years from all of our allies, because we're just not there. Um, I want to talk about your pinned tweet, which is the first, I think, (laughs) way that you came to my attention. My forever Um, pin. Your forever pin, which was, (laughs) I'm looking at it right now. It's, so you, you linked to a Politico story of yours called 
they called it Putin's real long game, um, although it was about even more than that. It, um, and it was, I can't believe the date on this, January 1st, 2017. So before the inauguration of Trump and at the very beginning of what you describe as, in the recent piece, as a terrible year in um, in the region or in the Baltics and Ukraine. Um, and um, you make a point that was, all I can say is both self-evident at the time and since, self-evident, nothing in this has been anything but borne out by everything that has happened since, and yet controversial enough to, you know, make you a, you know, a controversial figure at Georgetown where you teach and also um, in the media. And that combination has been very strange. The criticism I think, from left and right alike about this point that we are at war with Russia. And whether we admit it or not, whether it's a declared war or not, whether Trump's allegiance to the Kremlin counts as treason or not because the war is not technically declared, we are in this war. This is how this war is going to be fought because you've studied the Baltics and Ukraine and you know how the Russians operate. And why in the world was this piece I mean, I, this is a softball question in the extreme, but I think it's been it's been a challenge even in your career to be heard. You know, you've been you you have a lot of devoted readers um, who know you've been right all along. But I think some blows dealt to uh, mostly from the charge that you, among others, including me, were Russophobic and deserve to be taken apart in both Russia today and uh, and the New Yorker and other lefty places. So what the hell happened? Since we're t- like everyone's talking about cancel culture, I'd rather hear from someone whose voice was semi-muffled all this time, whose crucial voice was semi-muffled than people who, you know, got called a bedbug on TikTok. So tell me how that went for you if it's not too uh too delicate a matter to discuss. Also, no one should be on TikTok because all that China stuff just needs to be shut down. But um, yeah, uh, I think it's on the opponents of the Kremlin side. It's a real complex landscape of resources that are aimed at shutting up people who have anything useful to say on this. And it's a variety of means and tactics. If you look at the region and you look at the politicians who are the most uh, sort of vociferous against what Russia is doing and what needs to be done to stop them, um, the different types of accusations and personal slanders and scandals that have been drummed up around them to sort of make them less appealing to work with uh, is sort of one extreme of that example. And then I think the piece that people are really willing to ignore is the amount of resources that are devoted at people like me. Um, And like, no offense to me, but who the hell am I? Like, who the (laughs) hell am I that I deserve so much systemic attention from the horseshoe band of goons to discredit me, to attack me? And not about me, but about what I'm saying, which is, hey, if you look at what the Kremlin's actually doing, it's pretty clear that we have to do something about it because they're at war with us. And if we don't admit that we're losing. And um, again, this is not like me expounding on cold war beliefs, but it's like, if you physically look at what they actually do, what we can document that they're doing, it is a challenge to democracy and to everything that we believe. 
and we're not doing anything about it. And it's like mind boggling that we're convincing ourselves this is somehow not a threat. How did a media outlet that like Chapo Trap House that in the beginning of Trump's presidency seemed to have some credibility among Bernie bros and has recently been deplatformed, but that have de- definitely taken innumerable shots at me and no offense to me, but who cares? I mean, I <laughs> voted for Hillary Clinton seems to be my chief crime. And um, but now have been deplatformed after years of making it clear whose side they were on. How did sort of mainstream media or, you know, center left media decide to take seriously a kind of rhetoric that turned out to be too insane for Reddit, ultimately, that, you know, someone like you is is a Russophobe and that you shouldn't be listened to. So maybe you can talk about how that happened, how how criticism of, you know, your account of the Garasimov doctrine made it to, you know, all the way into the New Yorker and also describe what that horseshoe band of goons is because um, not my dad used to say, Les extremes satouche, the extremes touch each other. Yeah. Um, but that's a too posh a way to say what you say with the simple word horseshoe. horseshoe um, and goons, yeah. I think you introduced me to the horseshoe band of goons. Tell us about Chapo and other lefty organizations that have been critical of you and aligned with RT and about what the horseshoe is. Well, like I said, there's a, there's a, a rich landscape at both ends of the, of the spectrum that I think do sort of bend back around when it comes to this idea of, you know, on the, tr- like right now on the Trump side, there's the core isolationist thinking in terms of what America should be in the world. Like, let's all go home and build a giant wall and just shoot anybody that comes near it and like mm-hmm. sit at home and wave our Confederate flags or whatever is sort of the one extreme end. But on the other side, you really do still have that core group of anti-war Bernie bro types who uh, you know, arrive at this ideological thinking from a very different place, um, but nonetheless argue from the same perspective. And I think it's not just on um, one uh, simple issue like U.S. power projection overseas. Uh, it, it's sort of writ large on a variety of things. And I think left and right, if you sit down and sort of look at who's arguing what about specific things that are of extreme importance to the Kremlin and its own agenda, it becomes clear over time who fits in this landscape in a way that is either very useful for them or directly aligned. And mm-hmm. um, it is not to say that everybody writing uh, bad things about me is taking money from the Kremlin. Obviously that is not true. I think there are many people who do it from a place of their own ideological beliefs, but, um, uh, but I just think this, this broader landscape of people who have been roped into making these arguments because they sound sensible the Kremlin can't possibly be as much of a threat as crazy people like this McHugh lady say, because at home, like Putin's not popular and the economy sucks and they can't even pick up garbage. You know, how on earth can they be attacking all these other countries in the ways that these people describe? Well, like, yeah, that's always been the true, you know, the, the Soviet Union has been economically collapsing for 75 years and somehow that whole time has been a threat globally. And, um, uh, you know, it's just, it's the willingness of people to sort of stay engaged in these narratives that have elements of lulling everyone into complacency on seeing real threats or the unwillingness to even consider the perspective of those threats and just stay in this ridiculous, Russia can't pick up the garbage, how could it be a threat narrative? Mm -hmm. 
the other end of that, which sort of started in the 90s and still has advocates now, is like, you know, Russia's still this last great economic frontier. Like, if only we could partner up with Russia on green energy, like, wouldn't everything be better? And then they would understand they should just be not crazy, mm -hmm. uh, which didn't work out well for Obama, and it's not going to work out well for anybody else. I think there's there's all of these ways that the Kremlin is willing to devote resources to cultivating people who are making their case, making their arguments, um, and ensure that they get amplitude and support by making those arguments, even in ways that people may not see, um, that I think we really need to pay more attention to. And I think we were having this funny discussion about this the other day because I write these incredibly long pieces and I am fortunate to have outlets like Politico and Wired that are occasionally willing to publish them because they're so long. Um, but there really aren't, if you're writing against the Kremlin, like mm -hmm. in this lane of Russia is a threat, here's a way to consider analyzing this threat as it connects to China and other things now as well. There's like a handful of places you can publish long pieces. But if you're writing that, in fact, there is no threat and actually it's all crazy people who are making it up and really the, the, the truth is that it's the people who can't pick up the garbage and we should all be paying attention to the fact that America is terrible instead. Mm -hmm. um, there's like 10 times as many outlets who will publish your long read on that. And there's yeah. a lot more of them and they just sort of create this landscape of it's not really a threat. And you can look at these moments, like when the Russian bounty stories come, when the Russian bounty story came out, you know, who were the first five people to write a piece explaining like, nah, the GRU doesn't really do stuff like that. Uh, you know, actually the issue is that the U.S. is still in Afghanistan or whatever other thing. Um, and they just sort of fit into this landscape of people who are constantly dismissing the threat of the Kremlin. And the core Russian soft narrative, like the Kremlin soft narrative, and there are many people in this group, and, you know, you can describe it however you want. Again, useful idiots. Sometimes they don't understand. Sometimes it's willing. Sometimes it's just sort of uh, something they truly believe. Um, but it's this idea that, yes, you have to be willing to say Putin is bad, right? Yes, Putin is bad. And yes, Russia is a threat. But, and then the whole stream of buts that comes after, you know, but they can't pick up the garbage, but actually America mm -hmm. is worse. But this is McCarthyism. I mean, that's yes. the other thing that does play itself out in the fears of, of cancel culture uh, is that there, you know, is enough of a tradition in this country of heightened anxiety about people aligned with Russia that has led to a new heightened anxiety about people who are anxious about people who don't, you know, don't want people aligned with Russia. So that is also ripe for exploitation. I mean, I just think that the Kremlin must be quite pleased at how much we're chasing our own tail at every level on these crazy issues. I mean, recophobia is just not a thing. Yeah, I mean, it's sort of amazing that they, I mean, there's instances in which they need to devote zero resources to attacking their opponents because other people will do it for them. Yeah. And yeah. in human physical form, in press, in personal phone calls and outreach, like the amount of energy that has been devoted to discrediting people who write specifically about aspects of hybrid tactics and how they work and what they do yeah. is astonishing to me, both here and in Europe. 
Molly McHugh at Molly McHugh on Twitter. She advises governments and political parties on foreign policy and strategic communications. She's advised the prime minister of Moldova and the president of Georgia and has been doing this work since 2009. Molly, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me on. That's our show for today. What'd you think? Let's uh, trend together. I'm at page 88. The show is at Real Trumpcast. And then go to Slate Plus. You got to do it. Go to slate.com slash Trumpcast Plus and sign up. Plus members get all of Slate's podcasts ad-free, only $35 for the first year. And best of all, you'll be supporting our work. You know those new podcast services that are $35 a month? This is $35 for the first year, and you don't have to hear any ads. Go to slate.com slash Trumpcast plus. Our show today was produced by Melissa Kaplan and engineered by Richard Stanislaw. I'm Virginia Heffernan. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast.